Welcome to the Building the Elite podcast, where we discuss the physical, mental, and emotional aspects of human performance within military special operations by looking at the principles that can help anyone thrive in chaotic and challenging environments. Over the past decade, we've helped prepare hundreds of clients for dozens of different soft selection courses. Through this process, we've developed an extensive model of what's required physically and cognitively to make it through almost any selection. In other words, how fit you need to be and the thinky brain skills, things like segmenting, compartmentalization, and managing your self-talk that you need to manage the various tasks that you'll be required to do. The specific skills and physical traits necessary to succeed vary a bit from course to course, but we have a robust and adaptable process to get people extremely well prepared for almost any selection. However, there is one area we haven't developed as extensively, the emotional and social components of a soft selection. These are often the limiting factors for either not getting selected when you make it through a selection but aren't chosen to move forward, or outright quitting. We can't cover these broad topics in a single podcast, but we will explore them over the coming months. In this podcast, we will highlight the specific skills necessary to manage the emotional and social experience of failure, setbacks, and pressure from cadre and peers that are common at soft selection. This will include a recap of mental skills that we've touched on before in different contexts. Nearly everyone who quits in soft selection does so for one of two reasons. They think either, I don't feel like I belong here, or others don't feel like I belong here, and I believe them. By design, these courses test the resolve of everyone. No matter how good you are, the machine will find a way to make you hit bottom and question your commitment and your sense of belonging. That's the point. It's when the test truly begins. Everything leading up to that moment is just protocol. Whether or not somebody ultimately decides if they belong can be unrelated to their actual performance in the course. The instructors in selection courses are often adept at imposing this belief just to see if it sticks. They'll pull you aside like they're doing you a favor or giving you some inside info. Hey, just wanted to let you know how much you suck. You really shouldn't be here. I would never want you on my team. I know you're hitting all the performance standards and haven't quit, but I mean, come on, you didn't even pass that room inspection. And your 500th push-up this morning looked pretty sloppy. You're really holding the team back. Remember when you had a grain of sand on your UDT vest after we made you do burpees on the beach for an hour? What a slob. How are we supposed to trust you in a firefight if you can't even keep your gear clean here on this nice beach? Anyway, you should quit. Give it some thought. As contrived and ridiculous as much of this sounds, it can feel very real when you're there living it, and it's the most important thing in your life. Of course, there are also genuine moments designed to break people down and make them feel inadequate. Between buddy drags, carries, logs, boats, heavy ropes, anchor chains— pig eggs, water confidence, swimming, running, rucking, leadership tests, or the countless other ordeals that various courses come up with, they'll find a gap in everyone's armor. Again, this is the point. These all use physical stress to find out what's inside each person's head and the extent to which they believe they belong here and are willing to suffer to stay. 
Ultimately, this comes down to how well you manage your inner world. There are two fundamentally different ways of thinking about personal growth. In a fail-safe approach, you plan for known challenges and implement known strategies for overcoming them. In a safe-fail approach, you embrace chaos and unpredictability and build processes to constantly adapt to the unknown. While you need a balance of both, most people are stuck in a fail-safe approach, where they are focused on developing themselves to become robust enough to avoid failure by managing challenges that arise throughout life. While this path leads to growth, it also sets us up for larger-scale failures when we face challenges that we didn't see coming. It can also lead us to gravitate toward known strategies to navigate challenges because our tendency is to fixate on the predictable. The more we can embrace the unpredictability of life and the need to adapt to its never-ending process of change, the less friction we'll feel in our daily lives. Instead of waiting for challenges to arise and reacting to them, we constantly seek new and unique perspectives and strategies to solve challenges. We don't throw out what works, but seek to iterate and build upon those foundations by exploring the nooks and crannies. This isn't a subtle shift in approach. It's a fundamental difference between stagnation and changing out of fear or necessity and embracing constant growth and adaptation as an unavoidable aspect of life. The fail-safe approach is outcome-focused. It's the, I need to develop a skill to solve a problem before me approach. While the safe-fail approach is process-focused. It's the, I need to learn to more skillfully navigate the never-ending and unpredictable aspects of life approach. After starting many businesses over the past 20 years, we now understand how laughable a fail-safe business plan is. It's a nice idea in theory, but it never works in reality. Crucially, when something sounds good in theory but doesn't work in practice, it means that the theory is flawed. Imagining that you can predict or plan for all roadblocks, setbacks, and opportunities is a recipe for madness. So we've given up even trying. It's not that we don't plan or have a vision for where we're going, but chaos and unpredictability are the norm, not the exception. A safe-fail approach is the only way to successfully navigate starting a business. Soft selection is no different. Even when you know what to expect, the physical events, standards, course length, and the general stressors you'll face, like sleep deprivation, colder heat, lack of food, team events, and so on, you will face many setbacks and unpredictable situations. That's the point. You can't game the system or plan for all eventualities. You have to embrace chaos and learn to work with it, to see many failures as inevitable, and to build a robust enough mind to safely navigate them without giving up on yourself. If you attempt to avoid failure or delude yourself into thinking that you'll just want it more than everyone else, or that if you're fit enough, you won't have moments of crisis that you have to work through, you've already failed. In short, you can't make yourself fail safe. Instead, you need to be comfortable with small failures so they don't become catastrophic ones. The first step in embracing a fail safe approach is viewing challenges with a growth mindset. 
The first component of a growth mindset you must embrace is that challenges must be viewed as learning opportunities. You need to view failures, mistakes, and negative feedback as essential aspects of learning. If you have a fixed mindset, you'll avoid admitting to mistakes. You'll explain negative feedback as a fluke or ignorance. You'll pursue challenges that don't push you or that you're confident that you'll get through. In short, you won't actually pursue challenges. You'll pursue comfort. Even in a soft selection, this can play out. You'll avoid taking risks and contributing your thoughts during a team event, or you'll ignore feedback from the cadre and continue executing tasks the same way that doesn't work. This often comes from a lack of confidence or wanting to play it safe. You don't want to be an idiot. Strategy matters, but selection is not the time to blend in. Your peers or the cadre will let you know if you make a mistake, and they'll watch how you respond. That's when the real test begins. To love challenges, you must love mistakes and negative feedback. Not be ambivalent or neutral about them, but love them. Embrace them. Own every shortcoming and failure. The second aspect of a growth mindset that you must embrace is to let go of comparison. A zero-sum mindset where you see others' successes as a threat to you puts you in an aggressive, hyper-competitive mindset that holds you back. You aren't competing with others at a soft selection. 70-plus percent of your peers will disappear regardless of what you do. You don't have to worry about making life worse for them or needlessly comparing yourself with their every move. If you're constantly comparing yourself to others, you're making yourself susceptible to large drops in motivation and strong emotional reactions when you inevitably don't stack up to someone else. Everyone is going to have a bad event, and you can't afford to make it worse by compounding the situation with a strong emotional response or harsh self-criticism. More importantly, if you're not viewed as an asset to your team and you're only looking out for yourself, you'll likely fail peer reviews or ostracize the cadre. Most soft units operate as teams, and you need to be able to communicate and work with a variety of personalities in high-stress situations. An affiliative or group-oriented mindset where your goal is to help the team succeed is more helpful for working with your teammates and puts you in a more resilient mindset focused on growth and overcoming challenges, not constantly comparing yourself to your peers. Focusing on helping others also pulls you out of your own thoughts and feelings and gives you something else to focus on. The pain and fatigue will fade to the background as you work to solve problems and build others up. And the more you help others, the more they will want to reciprocate. If you help someone who's struggling, they will help you out or give you a pass when you're not at your best. Of course, you must read the room. Don't be needy or annoying. Pay attention to body language and adjust with each person. These skills require practice. You should start on them today. It's important to note that you can still compare your performance to others to ensure that you're above the standard. But this can and should come from a place of growth. Seeing the data as helpful and necessary to adjust, thrive, and adapt to changing circumstances. The third component you must embrace is letting go of validation. 
A need for validation holds us back in many ways. First, if we're seeking validation, we'll always be focused on performance outcomes or looking good. While monitoring our performance is helpful, if we're scared of looking bad because we need positive feedback, we'll avoid trying new strategies or investing in short-term loss for long-term gain. Even in selection, this is a problem. While you're mostly just performing or displaying what you already know, sometimes you'll have to pick up new skills or solve problems in novel ways. You can't fear looking stupid or making a mistake if you're already not performing. That's the time to use your brain and try something new. The same old strategy, but harder, is rarely the solution. Second, if we need positive validation, we'll likely avoid tasks that we aren't good at and focus on improving the areas where we're already good enough. This could mean, for example, doing more strength workouts because you're good at them, while ignoring running and swimming because they're weaknesses. In a soft selection, this means only doing the things we're comfortable with, which could mean disappearing during team events because you're uncomfortable speaking up or avoiding leadership positions within your class. A more insidious consequence is that we will likely turn on ourselves when we face setbacks and failure, berating ourselves with negative self-talk and having strong feelings of disappointment, anger, and fear. This is how you convince yourself that you don't belong or aren't good enough. It's not the cadre, your teammates, or your failures. It's your response to them. Pursuing challenges out of a sense of growth, fulfillment, and purpose is fundamentally different than doing so from a place of insecurity, perfectionism, and self-criticism. We must be okay with who we are to be comfortable taking risks and with the inevitable setbacks and negative feedback that accompany them. Managing expectations also plays a huge role in how we process challenges. When we don't take the time to examine our expectations and they don't become a reality, we can have strong feelings of disappointment, resentment, anger, frustration, discouragement, or resignation. We set ourselves up for failure when we base our expectations on things that we can't control. This is especially true if we operate in conditions designed to strip away our sense of predictability and control, like a soft selection, open-ended workouts, and most emergencies. A good example is expecting to cruise through a workout or feel great the entire time, maintain a certain pace or output throughout an event, or get positive feedback from those around you about your performance. All of these will set you up for failure. We can't avoid having expectations. Our brains always predict the future to gauge what resources that we need to cope, but we can shape them. We can examine our expectations and focus them on things that we can control. For example, we can expect to focus on our self-talk and maintain a positive or neutral headspace, or expect to segment, compartmentalize, and use other mental skills to cope with the challenges as they arise. Expectations are another word for predictions. Our senses of predictability and control are the primary variables determining how strong our stress response is to any situation. A higher degree of both equals a smaller stress response. Conversely, if we have a prediction that doesn't come true, we'll have a stronger stress response. In turn, Negative emotions stemming from faulty predictions often lead to decreased motivation. 
so we can shape our stress response and performance in challenging situations by understanding and analyzing our expectations. Our sense of commitment, control, and challenge, known as the three C's of hardiness, also play a significant role in working through setbacks and failures. Unsurprisingly, hardiness is also a significant predictor of success in soft selection. Commitment, the first component of hardiness, is an attitude of being deeply involved in every aspect of our lives, finding every aspect interesting and meaningful. Of course, everyone at a soft selection has shown that they have a reasonably high level of commitment. But those who embody this attitude stay engaged even in the highest stress situations. In other words, they are there to see things through, regardless of how hard it is. Commitment is seeing the most challenging moments as essential features of our journey, not something to be avoided. Control, the second component of hardiness, is the belief that we can influence the shape and texture of our lives and experiences through our actions. It's refusing to feel or act powerless or helpless, even in the most difficult situations where our senses of predictability and control, which are the two biggest drivers of our stress response, are nearly non-existent. It's focusing on what we can control and believing it's enough to influence the outcome in any situation, even when all we really can control is our attitude. Control is essentially the embodiment of active optimism, believing, no matter how bleak things might seem, that you'll find a way through while you do everything you can to make your desires a reality. It's not a form of delusion or ignoring reality, but instead choosing to focus on what you can control while being optimistic, not unrealistic. Challenge, the third component of hardiness, is an attitude that difficulties should be pursued and the easy road is not the path of meaning and fulfillment. Again, if you're at a soft selection, you're clearly choosing this path. But some nuances matter. If you truly believe that challenges are essential, you won't hide from the hardest moments in soft selection. You won't delude yourself into thinking that you can somehow out-fitness everyone and escape the dark parts of your mind, your doubts and your fears. You'll face them, knowing that's what you came for and that you're ready and willing to move through them. And the more challenging things get, the more you'll dig in and know you're in the right place. Not that you won't have doubts or setbacks, but that those are signs that you're on the right path. Combined, these three attitudes make up hardiness. It's not hard to see why they would be essential components of succeeding in a soft pipeline. The good news is that they are attitudes, not fixed personality traits. Adopting and embodying them requires only time and effort. The same goes for a growth mindset and managing expectations. All of the things we've covered so far are cognitive strategies that can become your default ways of thinking and of experiencing life. We've been tiptoeing around the most challenging part of dealing with setbacks, confronting and working through difficult and intense emotional experiences, which requires emotional intelligence, a completely different set of skills than the ones we've covered so far. All the cognitive or thinky brain strategies in the world won't pull you through something designed to break you down to your essence. You can't think your way through feeling like you belong or having what it takes to keep going when everything tells you the opposite. 
It's a feeling, not a thought. This is why emotional intelligence is extremely important, even in soft selection. Individuals who score higher in emotional intelligence have consistently shown to be more decisive and accurate with decision-making, they learn faster, and are seen as more effective teammates and leaders. They are also more likely to deal effectively with challenging social situations like disagreements, rejection, negative feedback, and isolation, hallmarks of soft pipelines. Individuals with greater emotional intelligence are also more resilient to stress, more confident, more curious, tolerate ambiguity, regulate difficult emotions, and are more effective at almost every mental capacity necessary for performance in high-stress environments. To put it bluntly, if you don't learn how to manage your emotional life, you're neglecting one of the primary factors in your success or failure in any soft pipeline or simply living a deep and meaningful life. Remember the two primary reasons why people quit soft selection. They think either... I don't feel like I belong here, or others don't feel like I belong here, and I believe them. Notice the root of both of those phrases. I don't feel, or others don't feel. Feelings are the drivers. People might devise rationalizations of why it was logical for them to quit. They were going to hold their team back, they weren't there for the right reason, they couldn't take that time away from their family, or they'll come back when they're better prepared. And they probably even believe these stories. But at the root, there was a feeling. Something they didn't know how to navigate or likely didn't even recognize. And when we're unaware of our emotions or how to work with them, they run the show. And we create cognitive rationalizations to make our behavior make sense, to justify the actions we feel motivated to take. Feelings motivate actions. That's their purpose. Fear, for instance, motivates you to flee or reassess your path forward. Sadness or resignation motivates you to withdraw, seek comfort, and reflect. This is how and when we quit or give up. We can and should use our cognitive skills to delay this moment, but when things get hard enough and we hit rock bottom, we have to be able to navigate difficult emotions to keep moving forward. People operating in environments where emotional expression is minimized, like a soft selection, often believe that means emotions aren't present. This couldn't be further from the truth. Every moment of your life, from how you think about yourself and your experience, to how you interact with your friends, family, and coworkers, is infused with emotional experience. Emotions are an inescapable part of being a human. If you didn't have them, like some individuals with traumatic brain injuries to the emotion-creating brain regions, you become utterly incapable of making the most mundane decisions. For these people, no matter how intelligent their rational brain is, questions like, what color socks should I wear today? Or, when should I go to the gym? Become overwhelming obstacles that their logical brain can't navigate. Without the capacity to feel emotions, you can't sense what you prefer or need. Even though our rational faculties contribute to our decisions, our needs and desires, experienced as emotions, are critical for deciding what matters to us. This is why we say that a decision feels right. 
It's literally a feeling or emotion. This is the purpose of emotions, to motivate action. They occur automatically and outside our conscious control. When you're in tune with them, you can use your emotions to adjust behaviors and navigate the rigors of selection. There's another part of emotional intelligence that is important to note here. Emotional experience is not the same as emotional expression or acting upon an emotion, knowing when, how, and to what degree to experience, express, or act upon emotions depends on context. Emotional intelligence is not being a flag in the wind, being blown around by your emotions. It's moving through life with a sense of equanimity, stable and capable of adjusting your approach based on the situation's needs. Doing so allows you to harness emotions when they are helpful, set aside ones that aren't useful or accurate, and alter their intensity to match the needed response. This requires a specific set of skills. First, you must accept that you're an emotional creature. Managing your emotional life is as critical as being physically fit, skilled, or intelligent. Without this, you can't outthink or exercise your way to success in a soft selection or any other domain of life. Next, you must be capable of recognizing emotions. To build this skill, start mapping your emotional experience. To do this, you'll use the skill of mindfulness, which can be defined as non-judgmental attention to present moment experiences. Put more simply, it's paying attention to what's happening in your mind and body. We've discussed mindfulness in nearly every podcast because it's the basis of every form of mental skill supporting resilience. Tuning into your internal experience and identifying your emotional reactions can help you to fine-tune automatic reactions in various contexts. A diverse vocabulary that enables you to experience different emotional states allows you to process and categorize internal experiences more effectively. It's like seeing the world in color instead of black and white. This increased granularity means a deeper vocabulary and nuance, allowing you to regulate yourself more effectively. Situations that used to make you angry now make you annoyed, peeved, frustrated, upset, or furious. A more diverse emotional vocabulary changes your experience and corresponding physiological responses. If you were colorblind, it would be tough to accurately describe a fully detailed version of the world to someone with full color vision. The same is true if you have low emotional granularity. If all you know is sad, happy, and mad, you have the equivalent of finger-painting skills to navigate your emotional life. You don't need to be the Rembrandt of emotional granularity to succeed in a soft pipeline, but you do need some basic competency. A good way to frame this process is to think of it the same way you develop a large experiential catalog for how you can be in pain or experience fatigue. For example, max effort one to two mile runs for time elicit a very specific type of fatigue and pain that is very different than the full body, your bones feel like they're made of lead and every cell in your body aches, sensation that occurs from long heavy rucks or team events. Anyone training for a soft selection becomes familiar with a wide variety of flavors of pain and fatigue. Rather than fearing the discomfort of running at max effort or carrying crushingly heavy objects, you start to sit back in your mind and take notes. You begin to recognize the different signals, like odd shimmers or flashes in your vision, 
a particular burning sensation, or a repetitive voice in your self-talk. You start to play with those things, noting, for example, if a specific breathing pattern or mental focus turns these sensations up or down. You become comfortable with extremely intense sensations. You need this same kind of catalog and comfort with emotional responses. To increase your granularity, practice naming the emotion you're experiencing. If unsure, Look at an emotion wheel, and if you don't know what that is, just Google it. When naming emotions, try to avoid big categories and be as specific as possible. You're rarely just happy, sad, or neutral. If this is hard, challenge yourself to expand your vocabulary. You'll know you have the right emotion when you find it. You'll say the words in your mind, and it will feel right, the same way you know when you've made a good decision. Often, We have a far more diverse emotional life than we can express with words. However, the better that we get at matching words to our emotions, the easier it is to manage them. Naming emotions brings awareness of them into the thinky part of our brain and gives us far more control over our response. Your cultural background and upbringing will significantly alter your existing skills in this area. If you find it difficult to name the emotions you're experiencing, tuning into bodily sensations can be much easier. This is especially true for individuals with extensive training backgrounds who are very in tune with their bodies. If you fall into this camp, start by describing where you feel the sensations in your body and then work backward to name the emotion. For example, you might feel tension in your traps and tightness in your chest. Next, think about what this feeling is motivating you to do. Do you want to smash your phone? If so, it's probably anger. Want to hide? Maybe it's fear. Emotions motivate behavior. Detail the motivation, and you can figure out the emotion. Once you've mapped the relationship between physical sensations and specific emotions, you can identify your feelings by tuning into your body. Just as you can have multiple thoughts on a subject, you can feel multiple emotions in any situation. To build emotional awareness, Start with simple, low-intensity situations with fairly clear emotional responses and slowly expand your range to more challenging situations with multiple simultaneous emotional responses. Just like every other skill, start with easy situations and slowly expand your range of comfort and competence. Next, separate your identity from the feeling. Just like pain and fatigue, you can feel something without it being you. You can easily do this by telling yourself that you are feeling, fill in the blank, emotion. You are not angry. You are not bored. You are feeling angry or bored. The goal of this process is to accept and feel the feeling. Don't ignore or fight it. With awareness comes choice. Just like a thought passing through your mind, you can let an emotion roll through you without acting upon it. A helpful analogy can be to think of emotions like weather. Separating the emotion from your identity allows you to choose how you want to respond, the same way you change your clothing depending on whether it's raining or sunny, hot or cold. Once you've mapped the sensations in your body and named and separated your identity from the emotion, You can move into the thinky part of your awareness and identify the corresponding thoughts and beliefs. 
If you're struggling to do this, approaching this step with a sense of curiosity is extremely helpful. You can't be curious and boiling over with anger. Just attempting to be curious turns on the thinking part of your brain and turns down the temperature of your emotional reaction. Once you've accepted the emotion and aren't captured by it, ask yourself, does this emotion seem helpful or reasonable? Reasonable means that the emotion and intensity match the situation. In other words, is what I'm feeling motivating behaviors that are helpful? For example, if someone is acting like an idiot and wasting your time, frustration is normal and healthy. If someone says a kind word about you, feeling confidence, pride, or gratitude is normal. If it's a reasonable and helpful emotional response, there's nothing more to do feel the feeling, deal with the situation, and move on. But if someone takes two extra seconds to notice a green light, flying into a rage is not a helpful or reasonable response. In this scenario, identifying the emotion and the fact that it's out of line with what's warranted is usually enough to change your response. This alters the feedback loop and usually leads to more nuanced responses in the future. Thoughts, beliefs, and stories are the final layer. Thoughts can create emotions, or thoughts triggered by an emotion can compound them. Awareness is the key ingredient regardless of which comes first, the thought or the emotion. We can alter these patterns by maintaining awareness of the thoughts, beliefs, and stories that amplify or hinder our performance. We've discussed strategies for adjusting self-talk and beliefs in many other podcasts and won't go into depth here. You can revisit those for more information. Following this process cuts the half-life of your emotional experiences drastically. Repressing or ignoring emotions doesn't mean they just disappear. Instead, they hijack your mood, thoughts, and actions without conscious awareness. You ride the wave of annoyance or frustration for however long that emotion persists. And when thoughts go unchecked, they often persist for a long time. Even worse, in emotionally charged situations, emotions can compound, frustration leading to annoyance, to anger, to despair, to shame, all because you didn't attune to the first emotional response and work through it. This is how setbacks snowball into catastrophic failures, like quitting soft selection, losing our cool and saying something we'll regret, or failing to be present when our loved ones need us. The goal of developing emotional intelligence is to feel your emotions first without reacting to or letting them take you hostage. You don't need to act upon all feelings. Some emotions are accurate and healthy and will lead to action without verbal expression. Differentiating how and when to react to emotions requires the skills we discussed today. There are many other components of emotional intelligence, such as working with unhelpful or overly strong emotional responses, changing the meaning of and your responses to these sensations, and learning to work with your emotions to understand yourself and others better, to name a few. We'll cover these topics and others over time in other podcasts, but today we've covered the foundation, the skills you need to do all the other work. This brings us back to the idea of a fail-safe versus a safe-fail approach. Life, including a soft selection, is not fail-safe. You will hit something that you didn't expect 
and don't know how to deal with. To manage intense experiences, especially those meant to amplify stress and devoid of all positive feedback, we must have the internal resources to manage setbacks and difficult emotional experiences. When we don't, we often turn on ourselves. The paradox of harsh self-criticism is that it drives us to be better while inhibiting us through fear of failure or not being good enough. Pursuing challenges out of sense of growth, fulfillment, and purpose is fundamentally different than doing so from a place of insecurity, perfectionism, and self-criticism. When we pursue challenges and growth due to fear, we feed the insecurities that we seek to overcome. In other words, belittling or attacking ourselves when we face setbacks or failures isn't helpful. It just makes things worse by feeding our inner critic. Feeling disappointment, guilt, sadness, and even anger is normal and healthy. We can and should use those emotions to stimulate growth and change without breaking ourselves down further with harsh criticisms and abuse. Holding ourselves accountable does not require abusing ourselves in ways that we would never do to another person. Almost no response is without benefit. Harsh self-criticisms that evoke fear, rage, shame, and insecurity are powerful motivators and can elicit actions to help us cope with setbacks. This is why we developed them in the first place. But when we rail against ourselves, we strengthen the roots of conflict and fear, breaking down our sense of self-efficacy, confidence, and resilience. We must be okay with who we are to be comfortable taking risks and the inevitable setbacks and negative feedback that accompany them. The only way to do this, and thus have a safe-fail approach, is to learn how to hold yourself accountable without breaking yourself down with harsh self-criticisms. We can hold ourselves accountable in a healthy and growth-oriented manner when we apply the following strategies. First, seek to understand. Investigating the cause of a mistake without exaggerating, minimizing, or ignoring allows us to harness our emotions to stimulate growth without self-indulgence or self-pity. Next, respond with kindness. Mistakes and imperfections are inevitable. We should treat ourselves the way we would a good friend or loved one. Accepting that we're fallible allows us to accept our shortcomings without making excuses or imagining we're better than others who fall short. Next, focus on serving others. Wallowing in self-pity is selfish and compounds the consequences of the mistake for those around you. Everyone falters. When we step back and focus on doing the next right thing, we accept responsibility without compounding the impact on ourselves or others. Next, separate our thoughts and feelings from our identity. The more effectively we can do this, the faster we'll learn without taking our struggles personally, no matter how intense our feelings. And last, accept that mistakes don't define us. How we respond does. Our confidence and self-esteem should not rely upon being perfect, or we'll never have the courage to be the people we want to be. The more we focus on the process, the better our outcomes will be as we learn and adapt. 
It can be extremely uncomfortable to act toward yourself with compassion when you've learned to harness a strong inner critic to drive growth. But we can't hide from the dark places in our minds. If we do, they will lash out when we least want them to, in the most critical moments of our lives, holding us back from being the people we want to be and depriving us of meaning and connection. We also can't overcome the scary things lurking in the corner of our minds through brute force. We must learn to approach them with curiosity and openness, seeking to understand and work with them. In this way, we can turn our demons into our allies, shifting them into a force for understanding, connection, and meaning. This requires treating ourselves like we treat those we love, with kindness, respect, and compassion. We've covered a lot of ground in this podcast, and one of the most helpful methods for putting all the pieces together is negative visualization, or planning for the worst-case scenario. In any challenging situation, a two-step appraisal process heavily determines your stress response. Do I know what's happening, and do I have the resources to handle it? It's the been there, done that test. If you go into a situation without mentally rehearsing your response to a worst-case scenario, you're setting yourself up for a compounded stress response. You will be in unfamiliar territory, trying to catch up to what's happening, with no certainty around your ability to cope with whatever's unfolding. Your adrenaline and cortisol will spike, and your cognitive function will change. You'll become panicky and reactive, and lose sight of your long-term decision-making for short-term survival. If your mental forecasting edits out the most unsettling possible scenarios, you'll create vulnerabilities in your ability to respond if and when those things happen. You'll be constrained and breakable if you have fewer responses than possible challenges. Instead, develop a conscious practice of visualizing the worst-case scenario before a challenging event and familiarize yourself with the dark corners where the scary things hide. Calmly and carefully walk yourself through every possible contingency. Rehearse how you will feel, think, and respond. Be extremely specific. Detail every aspect of your worst case scenario. Imagine what it might be like if the wise version of yourself was in charge. What will you tell yourself to work through challenges and grow, learn, and return stronger. The goal is to develop strategies to support yourself without quitting or hiding. If the critic comes out again, and they will, ask yourself how you can respond to that part of yourself with understanding and in a way that helps you become the person that you want to be. Failures can be crushing. They can have you questioning your identity and your worth. But any life worth living will have these kinds of experiences. The most challenging moments are what give meaning to our best moments. And the work you do today, when life doesn't seem to be at a peak or a valley, will inform the person we are in these critical moments. So, go seek out challenges. Plan ahead and do your best to succeed, but don't avoid or look away from your failures. Negative feedback is valuable data, and we often pay dearly for it. Don't waste it. Think of it as an investment in future performance. 
Part of the negative visualization process in our planning and training should be seeking out negative feedback and learning how to deal with it. Make a plan for what happens when you fail something. Create a scenario where that's likely to happen and then see how your plan works. Did your visualized coping mechanisms work? Did your inner critic take over and berate you? Did you hide and make excuses? Were you overwhelmed with fear, shame, anger, or something else? Was your plan fundamentally flawed? Are you not as fit or mentally capable as you thought? When things don't go according to plan, seek out information to find out why. This is where mentors and coaches come in. It's your responsibility to ask for feedback. Passively waiting and hoping it comes is a recipe for failure. No failure is a problem if you accept and address it. Playing only in your comfort zone by never failing or explaining away failures when they do occur is a recipe for disaster in the few moments that matter the most. This is how you face the dark parts of your mind without turning away. That's all we have for you today. If you got value from this podcast, do us a favor and send it to a friend. 